0: Today's class is dedicated for the Fwashlema um, someone who's who really, really needs a Fwashlema very quickly. Esther Bat Sophia Shafia. Esther Bat Sophia Shafia. She's Hashem, please send complete. the complete Fwashlema. is dedicated by um, Gabe and Joyce Kesri, who I'm very close with, who everyone knows how much kindness and chesed and charity they do for this entire community in so many different ways, in so many different organizations, in such a subtle and sometimes uh, open and sometimes such a subtle way. And we thank them for everything that they do. And bizznat HaShem, our words today should bring a complete Amen. So I believe that over the last year, The narrative on adversity has changed. And the way we view adversity and the way we talk about it has changed. And what we're going to try to do today is reconfirm what you already know and what you already believe, but hopefully allow us to see it in a bolder, clearer way. In this week's parasha, Yaakov Avinu leaves his father and mother's house and he goes, so to speak, into the lion's den. He's going to go into the house of Laban. He's going to marry basically four wives, Rachel, Leah, Bilhan, and He's going to have 12 children, 11 boys, and one girl, all in this week's parasha. But to start it all off, our Torah tells us the story that we're most... Um, we're most familiar with probably from this entire parasha. And the story is, he reaches a place, it doesn't tell us where that place is. Turns out it was an unbelievably holy place. And he goes to sleep over there because the sun had already set early. And he takes stones and he puts it by his head and we've given classes over the years about those stones. And he goes to sleep. And he sees a dream. And in the dream, there's a Ladder going from earth to heaven. And the head of the ladder is in heaven. And he sees angels. Going up and down. Up and down he sees angels. He sees his vision. And Hashem is standing on top of him, so to speak. And he says this, I am Hashem, the God of your father, Abraham and Isaac, And the land you're sleeping on is holy. And I'm going to give it to you. And you're going to be blessed with all of it. We all know The vision. We've all seen the pictures. Our children have come home with little projects of the ladder with angels going up and down. My question is, why is he seeing a vision of a ladder? At the end of the day, do you know why it was a ladder? Do you know why the head of the ladder was in heaven? Do you know why there were angels going up and going down? Do you know what it means? Hashem was standing on top of him. And then why does it tell us, if We reached a place, why doesn't it tell us where that place was. It just tells us a place. Why isn't it a point where the place is? So I'd like to answer all these questions and I would say, a fairly simple way. But I want to tell you something that happened about 10, 15 years ago at Pixar. You know what Pixar is? Pixar is a company that makes animation. And there are obviously artists at Pixar, and there are a lot of other people that are not artists. And they wanted to show all of the non-artists, a little bit about art. And they said that what makes an artist an artist is really not just the fact that they may be good with the pen or good with the crayon or good with the paintbrush. What makes them an artist is that they notice things that you don't notice. I'll explain. Have you ever drawn a picture of a, per- of a person with a face? Yes? Have you drawn a picture? So how do you draw it? You draw a circle. You put two eyes, put a nose, put a mouth, and it looks like such a pathetic example of a face. Why are we all so terrible at it? The answer is because all we see, and maybe even make the nose curved, and you're like, "Wow, that looks like a nose." Why does it still look so terrible? The answer is that there are many components to a face that you don't even notice and therefore don't draw. As an example, have you ever drawn a face? You ever draw a forehead? You don't see the forehead. You don't see the cheeks. And so because of that, that's why you're not an artist. An artist knows how to draw even the features that are not bold and that are not dynamic and don't stick out in your face. They don't just draw the things that you see, the eyes, the ears, the nose. They draw the things that you are subtle and you don't quite see. Our goal of this is what Hashem is telling Yaakov Avinu, is I want you to now be able to be an artist. I want you to see it all. And here's what you need to see as you're about to go into the house of Lavan and go through tragedy and turmoil and challenge after challenge. Here's what you need to see. There is a ladder from you to heaven. Everything you're doing has angels that are going up that ladder to heaven. So what your actions, your thoughts, your deeds, your words are impacting heaven constantly. And so you need to see it that way. You can't just see what you see in front of you. Wherever you go, you need to see the ladder to heaven. You need to see that your actions are impacting what's happening in heaven. You need to see literally that you're creating angels, that as you do good deeds and good things, those angels are rising closer to Shemaim And if you do bad things, God forbid, they're going down, they're descending, and you're making negativity happen. What you're doing and what's happening around you is so much more than the things you can see. There's so much more to the picture. There's a forehead and there's cheeks, there's cheekbones, and there's there's so much else that's happening besides the little things that you know, the things that you notice. You need to see the ladder in your actions. That's how life is. Life is that when everything you're doing, you need to see heaven in what's happening. You need to see Hashem. In what you're doing, you need to see that what my what I am doing is really creating a ladder to heaven, and angels are literally constantly going up and down everywhere I go with everything I do. They say that hindsight is twenty twenty. It's not true. Hindsight is only twenty twenty if you know what you saw. I'll tell you what I mean. Let's say a cat would jump. Onto a boiling hot pot. Is that a random scene? A, pet, a cat jumps onto a boiling hot pot, just came off the fire. What's the cat going to do? It's going to jump away. And the cat is going to, in his mind, say, I should never jump on a pot again. But the reality is the pot wasn't the problem. It was the boiling hot that was in the pot that was the problem. Do you understand what I just said? Mm-hmm. The cat thinks he has hindsight as twenty twenty. He thinks he knows what he saw. But he doesn't know what he saw. He thought he saw that every pot is bad. No, what he saw was only a pot with fire in it is bad. You got what I'm saying? Yes. The same thing is true in life. You could look back at something and say, oh, now I see it clearly. No, you only see it clearly if with hindsight, you see it fully. You only see it clearly if you are an artist and know every part of the picture, not just the parts of the picture that you noticed. Not just the parts of the picture that you stop to talk about. What we've gained in our life over the last year is to start and see the ladder everywhere we are. To start and see Hashem in everything we're doing. And to start and recognize that actions are not just the events I see. There's so much more than what I see. There's so much more happening. There's so much more to the story. I can't just see the pot. I need to see the pot that's hot and the pot that's not. Let me try and give you an example from last week's parasha, and I hope the message will start to crystallize as we continue, and you'll start to see how relevant it is in everything you're dealing with. So, in the beginning, last week's parasha, Yitzchak asks Esav to go get blessed to go get meat because he wants to bless it. That you know, but there's a Rashi that seems to repeat itself again and again. And to me, reading it last week, it stuck out. Rashi says that Yitzchak told Esav, go get me meat. And Rashi comments on the bottom, go get me meat. Be careful, says Rashi. Ha-gezel. Make sure you don't get the meat from some place that's stolen. The pasuk then says, esav, esav went to the field to go get meat. And says Rashi, he decided in his mind, if I can't find it from my own, I'll go get from stolen. Rifka then tells Yaakov, I want you to go and get meat instead of your brother. Says Rashi. She says, take from me. they're from mine, and they're not stolen. Why is there such an emphasis on stolen? Yitzhak says, Go tell him, go get meat. And Rashi says he means to say, Make sure it's not stolen. He goes to get meat, as she says he means to do, even if it's stolen. Then if God says to her son Yaakov, go get meat, and she says, don't worry, it's not stolen. Why is there such an emphasis on stolen about that meat? Good question? Yes? Real question. And so, I think that when you see the blessings Yitzchak is going to give, you'll understand the answer to that question. The blessing that Yitzchak ultimately gave, which he thought he was giving to Esau, but it was reality he was giving it to Yaakov, he says, God should give you. Elokim is God's name of judgment. Says Rashi, God should give you If you deserve it, God should give you all of this blessing of the fat of the lamb. But if you're not deserving of it, God should not give it to you. That's a Jewish blessing. A Jewish blessing is, I am going to give the future the Jewish people that God should bless you if you deserve it, if it's appropriate for you. And if it's not appropriate for you, you shouldn't get it. Now, most of us don't think that way. If I told you, you could be wealthy, do you want it? Yes. You don't think, I'd want it only if it's good for me. The answer is just yes. I could give you three more gorgeous houses. Do you want it? Almost everyone's answer is going to be yes. I could give you a beautiful vacation. Do you want it? Yes. We don't think if it's good for me, if it's not appropriate for me, we don't think that way. We just say, I want it. Yitzhak said, no, that's not the way Jews get blessed. That's not the way my descendants, that's not the way the chosen nation works. The way you get blessed is you get it if it's good for you. Yitzhak Avinu therefore was saying to Esau originally, if you want to deserve that kind of blessing, you have to be willing to live that way. That means, when I go tell you to get meat, you don't steal. Because you don't take what's not right, that's not belonged to you, that's not yours. And he goes, and she says he was willing to steal. Because he doesn't think that way. He just wants it. If tells Yaakov, I am going to give you meat that's not stolen. Because you are going to live a life where you get what belongs to you, what's appropriate for you, what is a blessing for you, not what you want. That's how we live. We live with God's blessing. God's blessing is not, I get what I want. God's blessing is, I get what He thinks I need. And what he thinks I need if I walk around with the ladder in my head. And I say, everything I'm doing has Hashem right there in it. And everything I'm doing is impacting heaven. And I'm sending angels up. And God forbid sending angels down. Everything that I'm doing has a part of me that's impacting heaven. Then I'm looking about it. What did Hashem give me that's best for me? What did Hashem give me that I need? What did Hashem give me that's appropriate for me? If I steal, then I don't think that way. If I steal, it means I just want what I want. And now she then continues and says, the later on Barakha that Yitzchak would give to Esau when he knew what Esau was, and he knew how bad Esau was, you should get plenty, whether you deserve it or not. Because that's blessing for someone I don't care that much about. Just get it. Take the money, take the food, eat it. But for us, the way it works is you get it, if it belongs to you, if it's appropriate for you, if it's actually a blessing for you. That mindset, that thinking, changes your attitude on everything. And we'll try to make it very real in the next few examples. So, My daughter gave me a book the other day. She says, Dad, look at this book. It's called Spare Your Child. It's a book on chinuch, on raising children. From the pieces that I've read, it's fantastic. Because it's really understanding how to relate to children today. So if you want to read a book about it from a real Torah perspective, this book is endorsed by some of the great rabbis of the day. And it has great, very real, practical concepts. And they ask a question in the book. They say that a child that's raised in a house that's poor comes is affected in a very negative way. If a child is raised in a home that feels very poor, he's affected in a very negative way. And there's much more crime from children like that, and there's much more catastrophes in society from children that are raised in a home that's poor. So this person asks the rabbi and says, I have a question, but reality is nothing I can do about it. My husband and I were poor and my child is being raised in that home. Does that mean that my child now is going to be in trouble? So the rabbi answers the question and he says, let me tell you about my childhood. He says, I grew up in Yerushalayim. As poor as can be. We had barely anything. Our toys were sticks and rocks and tin cans from the street. That's what we call toys. Our food was minimal. He says, but you know what? My parents never spoke about money. Ever. I never, ever felt poor. I was poor, but I never felt it. Even my grandparents <coughs> once gave me money on Hanukkah, and my parents were upset about it. And they were upset, like, what is the in mind? They asked, after Chanukah. they asked me, what are you going to do with the money? And I said, I'm a little kid. I said, I don't know. I have no need for the money. I'm going to give it to a family, to the Cohens.'" They need the money, I'm going to give them the money. And my mother and father with smiles said, why are you giving it to the Coens? And I said, yeah, I don't know, they look like they could use the money. So I'm giving them the money. And my father was hiding his smile, and my mother was like, couldn't hold back, and she was hysterical laughing. And later on, I found out why they were laughing. They were laughing because the Cohens were the wealthiest people in town, and we were the poorest people in town. And even when we'd go to the grocery store, if the bill got too big, the grocer wouldn't say, go tell your parents they owe us money. They would just say, go tell your mother the page is full. And my mother would know what that meant. We never spoke about money. We never spoke about being poor. We never spoke about not having. So I never felt poor. He, I, he says, the Cohens. when I would go to their house, they would always talk about money, always talk about what they don't have, what they do have, what they could do, and they can't do. And their father would yell at them when they didn't turn off the light, and it was like a big deal. In my house, my father would say, you know, it's a good idea to turn off the light. If we didn't, it wasn't the end of the world. We were poor, but we never felt poor. The cowards were wealthy, but felt poor. That, says the rabbi, you could have money or not have money. You could raise great children, no matter what your bank account looks like. But... How it feels makes a big difference. If your children feel needy and feel poor, then you're going to be in trouble. But if they feel good and they feel fine and they feel like they have what they need, if you can make them feel that way, then your children can grow up in a beautiful way. How do you do that? How do you make them feel fine? The answer is, is if you're good at changing the narrative of adversity. How do you do that? The way you change the narrative of adversity is you understand that we don't get any blessing. We don't get what we want. We get Yitzchak's blessing. We get the things we deserve. The things that are supposed to be for us. The things that are appropriate for us. Because what we're doing has a ladder to heaven. What we're doing is impacting in Shamayim. Hashem is constantly talking to us and constantly working with us. Esad that's willing to go and steal. Yitzchak says, I'll give you whatever you want. But, but us, that we only take what's ours, Hashem is talking to us constantly. I'm going to give you another, this, you know, I told you the story as if it's some random story. Now let me give you a very real one. So my son is studying in Israel this year, okay? And he went right after Sukkot, and he's learning in Israel. So he likes to go to some people's homes. So this past week, I said, Mike, how is Shabbat? He said, I went to someone's house at Shabbat. He says, Great. I says, how is the Shabbat? How are the meals? He says, I went to a person, in Yerushalayim, you gave me the person's name, I forget. He says, Dad, let me tell you what the meal was like. The person has 13 children and they invited five more kids, five more boys, yeshiva boys, okay? He says they served bread then they served a little bit of smashed eggs to put on the bread. Then they served a piece of kugel. You know what kugel is? Good. It's good, by the way. A piece of kugel and... He said the piece of kogel was like a sliver, like like thinner than your finger and like a, a triangle, a sliver. Each person got one sliver of kogel. And then you got a bowl that was called Cholent You know what chalent is. Yeah, bowl that's called chalent. what it had in it basically was potatoes, some barley, like one bean and a little strand of chicken. That was the meal. The whole thing: bread, egg, tiny bit of kugel, and chulent, which is basically potatoes. No meat, no beans, no nothing. That was the whole meal. And then for dessert, they served like a maybe canned pears. So everyone got their own canned pear, the whole meal. I like that. What do you think that costs? Maybe $25 for the whole lunch? My wife spent $25 just on kibbeh. $25 for the whole lunch. What is your lunch cost? $200? What is your Friday night dinner cost? $250, $300? You go to the butcher, before the guy even gets to the house, it's costing you money, then the other store, then you get the last minute, $200. Like, it's just... But what's the best part of the story? These people have nothing and decided that they can invite five guests. Like, are you kidding? You think that that, the answer is, if that's the narrative, if the narrative is that this is what we do, we're fine, we're good, we're okay, we have enough slivers of kugel to give out, we're fine, he says, dad, the house was happy, the house was upbeat, the kids, they agreed, they disagreed, it was a beautiful table, we talked, we had a wonderful time, he says, I was a little hungry, but we had a wonderful time. If you can change the narrative on adversity, your life is completely different. The way you change the narrative is you constantly see the latter. You constantly see that there's more to the picture than the nose, eyes, and ears that your eyes can see. There's much more that's happening. You don't just see the lid of a pot, you see when it's hot. You see more of the story that the world around you lets you to see. My life, I see things differently. I never knew, until recently, that I could give a class to nobody in the room and thousands of people can hear it. I never knew that I could, I learned how to be stuck in my house and make little videos that could spread around to all all kinds of people. I never knew that I could have a meeting with someone without them being in the room. But over the last year, I learned how to do Zoom meetings. And they're so so effective. I learned how to love my house more. And I learned how to love leaving my house more. It's true. I used to be the biggest house guy. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, I don't know why. I, I I learned that there are weddings that I can miss and they could survive without me. And I also learned how much weddings I miss. I miss being at. I miss a good wedding. I miss dancing in a circle. I used to just complain about weddings. That's how I used to be—just oh, another wedding, another wedding. Now I'm kind of get excited. I liked it. I miss it. I get to see people, smile at people. I miss that. I learned those things. I miss how many people are so committed to shul that even though they're nervous, they still come. Like the people that are in this room right now. That how many people are committed to coming to a class even though they have excuses and still want to be here. To me, it's a beautiful lesson to learn. I've learned how resilient my children are. We all have this narrative where we feel bad for them. And it's, I feel so bad for my six-year-old, and I feel so bad for my kid who's graduating, I feel so bad for my kid who's in Israel, and I feel so bad for my kid who's home, and I feel so bad for my kid who's senior year this way or freshman year this way. You know what? I don't feel so bad because I see ladders everywhere. I see people that are living life with a narrative that says that adversity is not adversity. It's a ladder. I'm not dealing with trouble and stress. We're dealing with life being different. And we're learning a lot about life being different. Let me give you another real example. I have a son who's in 10th grade. He's in yeshiva out of town. It's in Peska. He comes home once a month for off Shabbat. Good. The this, this system in the yeshiva... Is the way they decided to work, and everyone's got their own story of how they, how safe they are. And he has the yeshiva system. Anyone with antibodies is allowed to go home for the off shabbat. If you don't have antibodies, you can't go home. Good. My son's in tenth grade. Maybe there's thirty boys in the class. Twenty-six boys had antibodies. My son was one of the four that doesn't. So his whole class. Two weeks ago, on a Thursday, we're all packing up, getting ready to go home, and my Hazid little Rachamin is staying in school. They made a nice weekend for them, they took them somewhere, Bottom line is, he was staying in Yeshiva. And he was bugging out. And I felt so bad. And my wife felt so bad. He's not, that means, let me explain to you what this means, 10th grade kid, was he 15? 15, okay. From Sukkot, To doesn't come home. Don't you feel bad for him? Yes. I don't. (laughs) You know why I don't? Because you know what? He's learning a new narrative on adversity. I feel happy that he went through it. I I, can. come home, eventually come home. We found some way to get him home. Don't tell anybody. (laughs) Whatever. We have some good excuse, which I'll tell you about next week. That we can get him home for a night. But, but even if he wasn't going to come up for a night, I'm happy that, you know what? They're learning to deal with adversity. And they're learning to see ladders in it all. Because Yitzchak Avinu, you don't agree with my example. Yitzchak Avinu said, you're not just going to get every blessing you want. You're going to get every blessing that's appropriate for you. That's the blessing of Abraham Yitzchak and Yaakov. It's not whatever you want. The blessing for Esav is whatever you want. The blessing for Yitzchak to Yaakov is whatever you need. Whatever is supposed to be for you. And whatever is going to give you, help you with your ladder to heaven. That's what you're getting. And I want to explain to you an example within last week's parasha again, and then we'll get back to this week. Is At the end of last week's parasha, Esav comments... And it seems like Esav is almost a little—he's jealous of his brother Yaakov. And here's what the pasuk says. And most of the pasuk is going to fit with that jealousy, but there's one line that's not going to. Vayar Esav, Esav sees that Yitzchak blessed Yaakov, and that he sent him to Padan Aram to go get a wife. And he and when he blessed him as he left. And he told him, "Don't take a wife from the girls of Canaan." I get why Asav is jealous of the blessings. I get why Asav is jealous that his father encouraged him to go get married. I guess I get why he's jealous. Why he's jealous that he go told him to go and get more blessings and to marry the right person. But why is he jealous of the fact that he told him, "Don't marry from Canaan"? Why is he jealous of that? Why is he jealous that his father's limiting him? Why is he jealous of that piece? And you know what I think the answer is? The answer is this. You ever see a group of kids and they're out on a Saturday night? And there's 10 boys, they're out on a Saturday night. And it's late, 1 o'clock in the morning. And all of a sudden, all the boys are getting a phone call from, a text message from their mother. Where are you? Where are you? Where are you? And one kid doesn't get any call. His mother doesn't bug him. His mother doesn't bother him. His mother just lets him stay out as long as he wants. He might act like he's the coolest kid in the group. But inside, he's hurting the most. Because, he's one second, I'm the only one that has a mother that doesn't care. I'm the only one that has parents that do their thing and don't even notice that didn't come home. Yes, those mothers are annoying. But those mothers care about their sons. As Asab says, one second. Yitzchak, our father, told Yaakov who we can marry and who we cannot marry. He cares about Yaakov. He cares about his future. He's being careful about Yaakov. He doesn't care about who I marry. You mean he just says, I get whatever I want? You mean he doesn't even, he doesn't really, he doesn't really, he doesn't really care about me. He doesn't really think about me. It doesn't really matter to him what my future is. So Esau is not just jealous of the blessing. He's not just jealous of the fact that Yaakov going to go marry a wonderful wives. He's jealous of the fact that his father gave Yaakov limitations and he didn't give him limitations because it means his father cares about his future. It means his father sees ladders in him and it means that his father doesn't see any ladders in me. It means his, our father doesn't really care and doesn't see in me much greatness. Eat what you want, get blessed everything you want, marry whoever you want. I don't care. At first it feels good And then all of a sudden it's insulting. When Hashem gives us life with a lot of adversity surrounding it, you call it adversity, you're using the wrong words. The right words are a lot of opportunities for ladders, a lot of chances, and you've seen it. You've seen it in the last year. You've seen how you've created ladders. You've seen how you've created things and things have changed and adversity has made you better and made you smarter and made you stronger and made you more capable and made you more prepared. So I am happy for the kids that are going through life right now. Happy for them. Happy that they're getting some curveballs. Happy that they are confused and life sometimes feels not so stable. It's good. Learn a little bit. See a little bit. Learn what life is about a little bit. Learn how to deal with not being sure what next week's school schedule is going to be. It's a good thing for you. I want you to learn and see how you you start to become a stronger person. You start to become more prepared for real life. And if you look around at businesses today, some businesses are just crying. Other businesses are preparing Some businesses are just crying. I can't believe it. It's so terrible. Otherwise, get ready. At one, some point, we're going to be out of this. And are you going to be ready? Are you going to be ready to expand? Are you going to be better? Are you going to be stronger? Are you going to be smarter? Are you going to be more prepared? Which one are you going to be? Are you going to be crying? Or are you going to see ladders in everything that's happening around you? The fact that we're going through adversity, I think, is good. I met a someone I'm pretty close with. A lot of you know it's not a... So he happens to have a service business and he serves a lot, and his business is getting like rocked right now because it's specifically, uh, you know, has to do with leaving town, or just like the most hit of all businesses. And he says, but I, I service a lot of celebrities. I said, okay, name me a few. So he names me one actor, one actress, one singer after another, and one ball player, one ball player after another. I said, okay, wow, that's cool. You know, like the most famous in the world. I said, wow, that's cool. He says, but you know what's interesting? He says "The, the ball players, celebrities, are like the top ones in the world, like Michael Jordan types, are much easier to deal with than the actress celebrities and the singer celebrities. Why do you think that is? Why do you think Michael Jordan is easier to deal with than whoever her name is? Here's my answer, you want my little answer? Here's my thoughts, my theory. Tell me if you agree with my theory. The singing actresses, celebrities, they only see success. Every time they get on stage, it's jammed, and people are singing and dancing, going crazy, following the whole thing. Ball players have a lot of failure. If you're the best basketball player in the NBA, you still miss half your shots. If you're the best baseball player, you get out three, two-thirds of the time. The best players get out two thirds of the time. If you're the best quarterback, you miss a lot of your throws. So, ball players have a lot of adversity. So, they're more real people. These other people don't have any adversity. They just sing and everyone loves them. And what they said the greatest, they're not living life real. And because of that, he says if you ask me, these celebrities are much more miserable than those are. You need to change the narrative. We need to change the narrative on adversity. Let me give you a little thought and a a little story to conclude. Yaakov Avinu gets to the house of Lavan and he is poor. He has nothing. Why does he have nothing? The Midrash tells a story that he left obviously with a lot of money. Lavan came running out expecting him to have a lot of money because Lavan remembered back when his sister Rivka got married, the servant Eliezer came with a lot of jewelry, a lot of money. So he said to himself, Lavan says if the servant came out with a lot of money, the son is for sure going to come with a lot of money. So out come Yaakov comes and he's got nothing, not a dime. The Midrash tells the story that Esab sent his own son, his name was He sent his son to go kill Yaakov. The boy loved his uncle Yaakov. He says, I don't want to kill him. He goes to his mother. His mother says, don't kill him. He says, but my father wants me to kill him. So he goes to Yaakov. He says, my father wants me to kill you, but I don't want to kill you. So Yaakov says, here's what you could do. Take all my money. And if I have no money, it's as if I was killed. Why does Hashem make Yaakov Avinu have to go to the house of his prospective wives with not a dollar in his pocket? Why does he have to go with nothing in his pocket? The answer is he needs to be prepared for the rest of his life. And the way he's going to be prepared for the rest of his life is deal with having nothing in his pocket and still be strong and still be great. It says that at that point is when Yaakov Avinu created the chapter in Telin that is by far the most famous that said in a time of need, Ezri. Yaakov Avinu turned to heaven and said, Where is my help going to come from? Where is my help going to come from? And Hashem, his response was, ezri me'im Hashem. My help is going to come from God. He had to ask the question and get the answer. Why couldn't he just say my help is going to come from God? The answer is he had to go through that feeling. I am lost right now. I don't have anything with me right now. I don't have a dollar on me right now. Where is my help coming from? Oh, it's going to come from the top of the ladder. That's what has to happen. Yaakov Avinu is going to transform himself through the adversity and make himself ready for all the challenges of the rest of his life. We need to change that narrative. And like I said starting, I think you already did. I think most of what we said today, you already knew and you already have that in your mind. But it needs to be crystallized for us and for our families and how we're going to live. We're going to live like artists. We're going to see a lot more than the random person sees. We're going to be able to see the ladder and everything that's happening around us because the blessing Yitzchak gave us was not that you get whatever you want. The blessing was only to a person who doesn't steal. The blessing was only you're going to get what it belongs to you. And that's how we're going to live. We're going to live with that mentality. When you live with that mentality, that means if I have it's good if I don't have, it's also good. That means if I could go, it's good. If I can't go, it's also good. It means that if I can do it, I leave my house, it's good. And if I can't, it's also good. It means that I can see an opportunity for a ladder in almost any area of my life and anything that I am doing. So there's the word adversity isn't even in the language. That's why a kid could grow up poor in Yudushalayim and think he's fine because his parents know how to create that narrative. His parents know how to make him see a forehead. They know how to not just see a pot, but to see when it's hot and when it's not. It means being able to see that the top of that ladder is going to heaven, and I am creating angels in every action that I do. Yaakov Avinu was prepared for the rest of his life by losing all his money as he's about to go out on his journey. Hashem says, because now you're going to see your world only dependent on me. I want you to ask the question, how am I going to be helped? And then I want you to realize the answer to the question. Over the last year, you asked the question and answered it. You asked yourself, where is my help going to come from? Where is my guidance going to come from? Where is my light, where is my strength going to come from? And Hashem answered where it's going to come from. And you now have it clarified in your life that everything you're doing has a ladder. You can see clearly. The only way that happens is with an extreme amount of humility. The only way that happens as if you're able to not think about what you want and what you need and what you think you deserve, but instead think, keep thinking about what the top of the ladder needs. Hashem is nitzav alav. Hashem wasn't standing on top of Yaakov. Hashem was standing overlooking Yaakov. Says Ramban. And the reason why it doesn't tell us where he stopped, where the place was, because the place is irrelevant. Any place you are on the globe has a ladder to heaven. But you need the humility to see it. I want to end with one last story. A story, to me, of a beautiful example of humility and a mindset of humility. We've mentioned his name in the past couple of classes because he was the son and the brother of my Rosh Hashivah, David Feinstein. David Feinstein passed away a few weeks ago. I went to visit his brother who was my former Rosh Hashivah, Rabbein Feinstein. And when I went to the house, there was a young rabbi there, who told the story that happened with him. And I thought the lesson of the story was extremely powerful. This rabbi apparently is a teacher in a school, a rabbi in a school to little children. And he teaches Aleph, bet and Diktuk, and how to read. And so he went to the Gadol Hador of David Feinstein. and he said, Rabbi, I have a question. Do you read this Shiva? I forget the Nikodah that it was, do you read this Shavah, do you read it this way? Or is the right way that I should teach it this way? Should I teach it option A or option B? With this pronunciation or that pronunciation? Says David Feinstein, teach it to them the first way, whether that's the right way or not, teach it to them that way. He says, Rabbi, what does that mean? If it's the wrong way to read, why should I teach them the wrong way? He says, I'll tell you what. He says, because that's the way the rest of Kalah Yisrael reads it. That's the way the rest of the Jewish people read it they should read it like everybody else. Because if they read it a different way, even if they think they're right, they're going to think they're better than everybody else. He says, I'd rather they read it wrong than think they're better than everybody else. So read it this way, whether it's right or wrong. Because I don't want you to raise those students to think that they're the only one who knows the right way and everybody else is wrong. So teach it to them that way, whether it's right or wrong. That's humility. Humility means you don't think about what's best for me. It's so hard to do this, but we've done it. And I hope we've done it. And I hope we've really done it. And I hope we really have changed our view and now have the perspective of artists and not just the dumb perspective of cats. I hope we're able to really see what's really happening and the reality that's happening in the world around us. We're not going through adversity we're not going through adversity. It's the wrong narrative. We're going through opportunities for ladders in a million places. Thank you.